Hello and welcome to Underground Ramblings. I'm Nadia. And I'm Gwen. In this episode, we are sitting down with Jane Chilton. We start our interview talking about Jane's experiences as a novice caver in the early 1970s. We also discuss some of her caving adventures, including her expeditions to Matienzo, and we chat about how caving has changed over the years, both with the equipment and the social scene. This was the first episode we recorded, so we want to give an extra big thank you to Jane for going first and letting us learn from this interview. We hope you all enjoy. Hi, Jane. Thanks for coming to our podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, we just wanted to start from the beginning and get to know a little bit how you started your journey caving. So you want to tell us a bit about how you got into caving? Well, my first introduction to caving was when I was at school and I was taking geography and we were invited to go on a field trip at Buckden House in the Yorkshire Dales in Wharfdale. And whilst we were there studying the geography, the staff offered to take us out caving on a couple of nights. And so my first caving trip was when I was 16 in 1969. <laughs> and it was um, Dow Cave, which is quite a popular novice cave. But over the years since I was taken down it, things have become more unstable in there. And there's a part of the cave now called Hobson's Choice, which is quite loose. When I went in, we were taken through Hobson's Choice and it seemed fine. And we were taken as far as a vertical bit called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which um, we saw some other people climbing up. We didn't go up it. And we were taken just a very short way into Dow, which really impressed me because it has a sort of cathedral shape to the passage. And then the second trip that we were taken on was Langstroth Cave, which links up to Langstroth Pot. And it was just the opposite. It was a little small crawl over running water. And I was absolutely hooked on this. I thought it was marvellous and really impressed, loved it, the whole thing. And um, after that, I didn't really get a chance to do any caving much whilst I was still at school. I, a friend of mine worked in a record shop on a Saturday and one of the blokes who worked in there took us down uh, Browgill Calf Holes once. And that was good. We enjoyed that and it was excellent. But I think that's about the only time I went caving before I went to Leeds University. And so when I went to Leeds, I enrolled in the University of Leeds Caving Club, also. And the rest, you know, that's where it really started from. And I've been caving all that time ever since. So uh, when you joined ALSA, you were a, a novice caver. And is that when you... Uh, became more experienced in caving? Yes, because I, I was caving with Ilsa for quite a few years, really. Um, I mean, the first thing that happened to me at the Freshers Conference when I went around the stalls looking for things to join was that I went up to the caving stall and this bloke said to me, huh, we don't want women in our club, so I just signed up immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the rest of them were all very nice, to be honest. And I can remember it's being given a, a lecture by this chap called Stephen in one of the lecture theatres about how to use a carbide lamp and him telling us about helmets and lamps and shaking this carbide lamp up and showing you what happened if you shook it till those masses of gas came out and it, then it went boom basically so that was entertaining enough and they took us on ladder climbing practices to a local quarry near Ilkley and things because of course 
when I started caving, there was no SRT at all. It was all ladders and mm. lifelines. And really the basic equipment that you had to have was just a helmet, which was an old fashioned Texelex helmet, which no safety whatsoever, but was very good for storing Mars bars and extra rations in your <laughs> <laughs> head, on top of your head. And um, so you had the helmet and you had a premier stinky carbide lamp and that was it. I think it was about a whole princely sum of about 12 quid and you were ready to go caving really. <laughs> so that's how it started. And we were taking on various uh, caving trips in the first year and off we'd go but I think probably my first trip with them was sunset down to the bottom of the 50-foot pitch and that was fine and then I had a miserable time down Iaby because there were loads of us went down Iaby lots and lots and lots then of course it was long ladders and lifelines so it was a bit of a faff and I think I spent seven hours down there and then got to the bottom of the first pitch <laughs> And of course, <laughs> you didn't have any normal caving um, clothing on. I mean, when I started caving, I was caving in old clothes and these dreadful fashionable boots that you had in those days called desert boots, which were basically um, crepe sole suede boots, <laughs> you know, like lace up fashion shoes, really. And they were so ungrippy that you just fell off everything. <laughs> One of my first trips, we went into Kingsdale Master Cave and we went up the um, Calcite Way, which is sort of like crawly. And it was a wet day and it was all floody. And because you, as an impoverished student, the gear was quite expensive to buy. My um, clothing involved a pair of horrible jeans or something. And then this um, anorak that I'd bought from an ex-army store and it was an old radio operators naval anorak from the 1940s and it was like a canvassy thing and it was double skin so that you had an inner and outer layer that pulled over your head so when we were crawling up through all this water you were just absolutely carrying a ton wake you <laughs> in this water and all the water just ponded up between the two layers it was horrible by about christmas of the first year i when i got keen I invested in um, a do-it-yourself wetsuit kit, which was what was the sort of state of the art in those days. And you just got this fairly large old neoprene and a pattern and you cut it out and glued it together and taped it. And then that was the, that was the sort of go-to standard for when you were caving properly was a wetsuit. I believe the wetsuits led to a lot of exploration though. So it definitely yeah. won better than the old clothes in the in the denim <laughs> oh yes it was uh, vastly better than wearing a horrible what we used to call dry grots i don't know whether you still call them dry grots they weren't great on pitches because it's a bit like wearing something else you know something really tight fitting and it grabs you around the knees and the elbows and so it tires you out you're going to have to constantly work against the fabric of the wetsuit on ladders and stuff and it was hard work it was you know used to make you more tired to be honest I mean nothing was comparably as nice to wear then as an oversuit and a furry suit now I think the um, continental cavers had it right a lot sooner than we did and they got into SRT sooner and I can remember on one of the first expeditions I did to Spain in about the middle of 1970s talking to these French people who a were prosecuting and b were wearing suitable um, 
oversuits and things and they did a lot better on it than we did we were quite a lot behind the curve on that sort of thing so um can you tell me a little bit about how you felt as a novice caver like was it intimidating caving because I know also at the time was doing a lot of um, exploration it was actually a very nice club to be in there were quite a few women a little older than me who already knew the ropes and were good and um, they were very helpful and friendly and the whole club was a very nice you know kindly club to be in Uh, we were lucky because we had the Brooke brothers who were you know, the absolute doyens of caving at the time, they were the ones who pushed most of the stuff in the dales that you could really want to go to, or they could show you about it, or they could tell you about it. And they weren't um, shy on helping you out and, you know, talking it through. You were never made to feel unwelcome. It was very good in that way. And nobody made too many remarks about you being female because some clubs did. There was still, you know, quite I don't know how many clubs but certainly some clubs would not let women in and um, in fact the the most contentious thing about with the ulcer lot was that they did a caving expedition to uh, New Guinea in 1975 which was one of the very early tropical expeditions and they wouldn't let women go they said it wasn't for for women to go and it was just a man only thing and that really put some people's backs up not mine because I was still not particularly experienced and certainly not wanting to do something so serious, but there were some women who were older than me who were very good cavers and Mm. they were told not, you know, they Mm -hmm. couldn't go. So it was very different. The atmosphere in the whole society was very different then. Yeah, it's hard to imagine anything like happening (laughs) today, isn't it? It's very strange, but it was the norm. And when I was at the university in Leeds, there were still pubs where women were only allowed in certain rooms. You couldn't go into all the different rooms of pubs. And I I don't think women's equal pay came in until 1972, I think. So it was very different, but I never felt excluded. I always felt welcome. It was a very nice atmosphere. And from the get go, you felt like you were part of a group that cared. And I'm still in contact with a lot of the people I used to be in also with especially the ones who were slightly older than me who I really looked up to to show us the ropes and so on there were some very good cavers around they were happy to share all their experiences and it was around the time when I was in also that they got together uh, the Brooke brothers and Harry Long and Dave Checkley and various other people got together and started to develop the Northern Caves books because before that there was just Pennine Underground and I don't think there was really anything else that you could use the cave guide so they were doing the sorting out the cutting edge stuff for cavers to use and it was very helpful so you know I can't fault my early caving years they were brilliant. So um, you've mentioned some caving in the UK um, and also a little bit abroad can you tell us a bit more about your experiences of caving abroad? Well I mean, I started caving abroad fairly early on when I hadn't been caving all that long. We went to the PSM one year, 90, I think it was 1974, but it could have been 76. And um, we were going in from the, what was called the EDF hut. There's a big tunnel that the um, French power supply were conned into digging into the hill and that comes out in the wrong place to access the river but very useful for accessing the Salverna, which was at the time the biggest 
cave chamber in the world. And so we spent quite a bit of time one summer up at the EDF hut with the ULSA group. And then I think we went to the PSM a couple of times and then we moved on to Matienzo in northern Spain. And most of my foreign caving has been done in Matienzo and from about 1974, 76, can't remember quite which, up to the early 2000s when sadly my back went too bad to start to really do much expedition caving anymore. But for years I was going out there and for probably 20 years, probably twice a year at least to go and help with that expedition. And Toby, my husband, I introduced him to going out to Matienzo in about 1986. And from then on till the early turn of this century, we were out there most years, most of the holiday times, because I was a teacher. So I used to have the school holidays in the summer and at Easter. So we went there mm. and um, most of my foreign caving has been done there. Would you say that there's uh, any expedition that particularly stands out? So maybe one that you're particularly proud of? Well, one thing that I am pleased about from a personal point of view is Matienzo is in the north part of Spain in Cantabria. It's a particularly um, interesting area because the whole of the Matienzo Valley is an enclosed depression. So it's an enormous doling and the water has to go somewhere. But it's, um, I would say, sort of roughly Y-shaped. And one of the arms, the Vega arm of the valley, um, has lots of caves in it. It has some big stuff like Reñado, which is a, a really long, complex trip. And um, it, it's loads of potential in it. There's another big cave called Toad in the Hole there. And um, I was looking at this old survey of Matien, of uh, Reñada, which is in various levels. One of the things that I did think was that it should connect up to a much higher system called Cabana. And I encouraged some friends to, and Toby to go and have a look and bolt at that. And they did connect it to the Cabana and that was pleasing. But I also looked to one part where there was an obvious valley coming down. And there's only one cave that I knew of that was of any significance in that valley, a thing called the Frades. So I dragged somebody off for a walk up this valley to see if we could spot anything else. And we found something that had been looked at. Joe, who I walked with, was older than me. And he said, oh, so-and-so did this hidden hole years ago and um, kept but they didn't get down very far and so on. It was a very good drafting hole in a slot. And when we got back and looked at the survey, it became pretty obvious that part of the survey had been drawn wrong and the heights were all wrong. Ah. So managed to work out the fact and get some of that area sorted out. And on a later occasion, I'd been up, up this valley for a walk with somebody else, again, higher up still, got to an entrance which wasn't, on the surveys and um, it was late in the day when we got up there and I said do you want to go down and he said not really and I said well I'm going to just have a quick look and it looked like a decent going cave and and we went back up there with some other friends um, a couple of days later and found that you could get down into a decent sized chamber with a draft but without a, a doable way on at the time and that doable way on was pushed by a friend of ours who's quite a skinny person, managed to squeeze down um, into a bedding and find and get down a, a, about a 75 foot pitch. 
but that wasn't any good to us and we couldn't enlarge it it was too hard but we did find another possible hole up in the roof which Toby managed to hill to cap and we managed to get through that but at the time he had a back injury and only managed the odd trip from time to time so I went back with Pete Smith who actually lives out in uh, Matienzo the next day and Pete didn't have any bolting skills and so I rigged the pitch um, that the other guy had found the week before and we went down and got down into a sort of little chamber where there was obviously another big pitch going off and from there on we did find quite a lot of passages and things over the years that um, went to a certain extent not massively and not brilliantly it was all quite scrappy stuff and some of it was very loose and very dangerous basically there were some unpleasant bits to that cave however it revved up interest in that part of the South Vega system and on another occasion when we weren't there they found a much nicer cave higher up the valley called Papa Noel and that led to connections with Ranyada and so on so what I was pleased about was trying to generate interest in that particular bit of the hillside mm. and from that sparked off some other discoveries and so on I don't think um, the one that we found, which is called Juan Lombrero, is that significant. Although if you really pushed it, you could probably link it up to Reñada, but down in the bottom of the cave, it was pretty dangerous and loose and nasty. Mm. So I think the best um, thing about that whole expedition was getting the connections going to potential for other things. That's, yeah, it's so exciting and really interesting. It is exciting. I, you know, it's fantastic to just get into passages where you can say, you take the first hundred metres and I'll take the next one and so on. It, it's when you get into that stuff that you think, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, that's so different to my experiences of uh, exploring new pastures in the UK. <laughs> I was just going to say the thing about northern Spain, and it's still true, is you can actually just walk into stuff. It doesn't have to be you know you don't have to do lots of digging in boulder chokes always mm. you can be just fortunate enough to find the right shake hole or the right collapse and then you're in and yeah. that's the temptation of going back there and back there because it's um much more caver friendly and the caves are warm and they're ni often nicely decorated and so on and in britain although it's exciting to find new stuff it's much harder mm. You mentioned that you enjoyed going back there every year. Um, we've heard a story about a time when you had injured your ankle and couldn't... Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, would you like to tell us about this story? Well, I was booked down to go on a holiday with the Red Rose to the Felix Trom in south of France. And at the time, I was caving really well. And I did an evening trip with a friend of mine about a week or two before I was due to set off for France. And we went down Sunset... And I don't know whether you know the late, great Chris Kinghorn, but he was a lovely chap and he used to tease me about things. And he said to me, Jane, you're always wallowing up climbs. Why don't you just climb them properly? And so I'd just gone on a nice quick evening trip with a friend of mine down Sunset. And we got to the last cascade on the way out and it's quite awkward, but I thought, well, don't mess about just throwing your belly over the top of the cascade in the usual fashion climb it properly so oh, I did climb it properly and as I stood on the very top my left foot rocked back 
and it just flipped me back down onto the, you know, dropped off it and fell on the floor. And my left ankle went like that oh. <laughs> as it stood on a rib of rock. And it was suddenly very painful. So got my friend, she dropped me a ladder down because there's a bolt on that little climb. And I got out and we limped back. Well, I limped back across the hill and we went, I dove home. By the next day, my ankle was still in a lot of pain and very swollen. And Toby said, I think you should go to hospital. And I did. And it turned out it was a hairline fracture and they put it in a pot, which was so annoying because I was really looking forward to, to going and giving it large in the Phoenix Trom and then perhaps going up and looking at the Cirque de Gavani and all these other nice things in France. Mm. But before we left, I thought, well, I'm not going to just not go caving. I've got this plaster on my leg up to my knee, but I'm going to do something about it. So I went into Dugdale's, which is a farmer's shop in Settle and bought a size 12 pair of Wellington boots. And I sent off online for this rubber boot that you can put over a pot while you have a shower. And it was sort of like a giant rubber boot, like a Christmas stocking made out of rubber with a sort of valve on it that you pumped. And when you pumped the valve, um, it ended up deflating, uh, Pulled, taking all the air out of the boot and it glued itself to the pot pretty much and then it made, made the whole thing waterproof and then when I put the size 12 boot on and put some bungee around where I cut, cut it down to get my foot in I had a sort of manageable caving boot so that's what I used when I went to France and obviously I couldn't do anything very major but managed to go up to the resurgence um, to the Felix Trom with friends and had a pot around in there and managed to go up to some crags and look at some people climbing. Then we went over the border to Matienzo. And so we opted for a thing called Cave of the Mad Woman, which is probably good when you've got pot on your leg. <laughs> and it was a scrappy little thing at the top end of the valley with lots of sandy crawls and stuff, which I crawled about in sandy crawls till my leg was sandy enough. And then we came out, it wasn't anything special. And when Toby came over, I went, down with him down a cave which is officially called Molino but we call it Cueva del Agua because it's a wet cave mm-hmm. and that was fine except for the fact that my Wellington boot sort of rubbed against this uh, rubber boot that was covering my um, pot and sprang a bit of a leak in it so that the top of the pot got a bit <laughs> manky <laughs> and damp. so I'm afraid that was the story of me and the deflatable boot <laughs> I appreciate that story because I think it shows your, your dedication to uh, caving and adventure. <laughs> I used to really enjoy it. And another thing that shows a bit of determination and the face of stupidity is that Toby and I take the same size in Wellington boot. And on several occasions, I have actually gone off with two same-sided wellies in a hurry. And I once did Lost Johns <laughs> on two same-sided wellies. <laughs> oh wow <laughs> so you can imagine battle axe travis being a breeze yeah not. and when you're prosecuting and you're in steps on your outstep it gets really painful after a while <laughs> i can imagine yeah. yeah so i'm afraid that's the dedication level i had at one point <laughs> i guess that's part and parcel of uh of being a caver <laughs> so um can you think of like any other times where you've experienced difficulty underground or, or fear and how were you able to deal with this? Well, the, I have had 
a few run-ins with various things happening to me underground way of accidents and so on. I've always managed to luckily get out of these scrapes under my own steam. I haven't ever had to have the rescue team out. There was one of my um, fairly, by my standards, recent caving trips in the sort of early 2000s of back pains. I haven't been able to go much since then, where I really did get into a mess, which was very, I was very grateful to a friend for getting me out of. Um, for some time, uh, some friends of mine from the NCC had been digging in the bottom of Gower Hall in Mistral. And um, they had a theory that there should be something beyond the, the calcite wall at the back of Gower Hall. And they were right because it did go and you got through an extremely tight, flat out bedding and it debouches into a, a chamber, a decent sized chamber with a couple of climbs going off. And I'd been invited on these trips and I'd sort of carried the flask and been there, not in a very helpful capacity while they were bolting, but just doing bits and bobs. And the two climbs didn't work, two havens, but eventually on the day when I wasn't there, they managed to find a very tight rift at the back of this chamber and push their way up it and find that it was a goer. So anybody who'd been involved with the um, sort of digging preliminaries was invited along on the big push day. And so we, we went off to explore what we thought would be a nice open passage. Um, and that the, for a start, it's very committing because the entrance to this series is very committing to get into these chambers in the first place. Then you've got this extremely tight, awkward climb, tight for somebody my height and size, um, up onto a ledge. When you get to the ledge, there's um, a, a climb down and then you've got to cross about a 10 foot pit in the floor and go up a sort of rocky staircase on the other side to a phreatic crawl in of about two body lengths, three body lengths out, which debouches onto a pitch. And fortunately on the way in, you can go onto this pitch face forwards and crawl out. And then you can, there's a maneuvering room at the top of the pitch before you get down the ladder. And some of the group went off and climbed up a, quite a nasty free climbable rift up into the roof of this thing and pursued it a bit further, but it did get some very loose and dangerous stuff. Coming back from this end, uh, once the others had finished having a look at it, you go back up the pitch through this flat out phreatic tube and then you'd booch onto this rocky staircase with a pit in the floor. And if you were smaller than me, you could turn round and go back out of it feet first, but I'm too tall to be able to sort of maneuver and not very agile to maneuver my body round into a sort of reversing position on top of this pitch. So I went through head first. And I don't know about you, but when you get to the bottom, of, when you get out of something awkward like that, what you have to do is push, put your, commit your strength onto your arms, stretch them out, brace yourself against the walls, and then swing your legs through. But having totally committed my arms to being absolutely onto this muddy wall, my legs wouldn't come through. And there was nothing I could do about it because... I, hadn't, I couldn't push myself back because my arms were out at full stretch. They wouldn't do it. And I couldn't change my position. I just was there. And luckily, a couple of my female friends waited for me at the other side of this pit. And one of them, when I asked her, she came back 
which was quite a brave thing to do because if I'd have fallen at that point, I'd have taken her down with me into this pit. And so she came back and let me slide down her shoulder because otherwise I'd have just been out stretched spread eagled there till I lost my strength and then plummeted down the equivalent of a staircase and a 10 foot drop. And even if you'd have injured yourself, you wouldn't get out of there alive because it's just too hard, it's too hard, it's too tight, and, it you know, any decent injury would have been the end of you. I think that really, um, you know, shines a light on what caving really is to a lot of people, uh, just having that teamwork and, yeah, who, you know, will help you in those sorts of situations. Exactly. I think that's the good thing that I like about caving is that people do help each other out and you know, passing tackle bags in crawls and giving each other a push or a pull. It's not infradig. Nobody minds. It's not like climbing where it's got to be the pure line or the, you know, doing it by yourself and so on. As a caver, you always really have to cooperate. And that's the thing I, I mean, can do solo caving and I have done the odd trip myself where I've been on my own, but most of it's about camaraderie and about keeping an eye on each other and having a crack and enjoying yourselves. And I think that's why it's been such a perennial joy to me over my whole life, really. You've spoken a little bit about, um, you know, ladder climbing and now how most people will use SRT. How else do you think the caving scene or caving in general has changed over the years? SRT has been one of the main things along with the kit that you use you know people don't tend to wear wetsuits if they don't need them for something now it's a lot easier with without carbide lights electric lamps are great you know nowadays you can't have the excuse well I'm running out of light because that doesn't cut the mustard anymore you can probably have more light than you can have uh, sort of time in your life to use it but um on the social side, things have changed a lot. When we were young, we used to come up to the Dales, sometimes on the caving club trips on the bus. But if you're coming up by yourselves, there were a lot more caving hostels around in those days. And they weren't like the Red Rose or the um, Bradford Pothole Club hostels of nice houses with comfortable bits in them. They were squalid little huts tucked away all dotted around the countryside and with no facilities whatsoever that we used to use and so what we tend to do is that we'd all drink an awful lot of beer in the um, Martin Arms or the Craven or somewhere and then we'd all retreat to one of these little squalid holes that we used to hide in <laughs> overnight and have a sociable time. Cavers used to have a much more basic kind of repertoire of kit so it was cheap and it was cheerful literally cheap and cheerful to do and um the, you know, it was really good fun in all sorts of respects. You could have a very entertaining time in the Dales for a weekend. And people used to stay on Stores Common, for instance. You were allowed to stay at Ingleton up on the Common, which you haven't been able to do now for years and years. But uh, when I first started caving, you could just go and camp up there if you wanted to. And a lot of people used to camp up at the Hill Inn and places like that. So it it was a very sociable thing. It was very much a young person's sport as well. And I think what's happened with the caving scene is that my generation of cavers and people perhaps a bit older than me 
have carried on caving. Uh, the caving scene is a much more mixed age group thing than it used to be. We very rarely saw people significantly older than us in the caving scene. Uh, there were some, but not that many. Um, whereas nowadays it's pretty commonplace to have, um, you know, cavers and perhaps sons and daughters of cavers who are caving as well and so forth. So it's a very different kind of arrangement nowadays. Yeah, I think I really like that. I like the fact that it's not yeah. everyone the same age as me. Um, That's right. Yeah. It's really it's nice. I love to see people uh, coming up through the caving world because it's as it should be. And at one point, you know, there have been some very fallow patches in caving where there really haven't been that many young cavers around. And it seems to be becoming going through a bit of a renaissance at the moment, which is good. And certainly from the female side, it's a lot better. You know, there's a lot more really good female cavers around and doing their own thing and know what they're doing and so forth. And that that's a really good sign, I think, you know, that it's just become a much, it's not really a particularly gender related sport anymore, where it was almost well, probably 80% plus men when I started caving and it isn't now, which I think is very good. Yeah, I think um, the demographics were released by the BCA and I think in the uh, like 18 to 23, I'm not sure I'm quoting it exactly. It was like a two women for every three men or something like pretty, pretty close to equal. So yeah, it's, um, it's definitely changing. And it's an international thing as well. It's not just a vibrant community in one country. It's lovely if you've got cavers across the world you know, communicating, going out, doing things uh, as groups or, you know, even on Zooms and things to be able to get together. I mean, quite a few of my friends have been on um, in the past, in the 80s and 90s, caving expeditions to Mexico and teamed up with some of the American cavers and so on. And that's good. And friends of mine now live out in Vietnam and um, do the big tourist, you know, they run the safety side of the big tourist cave in Phong Nha. Um, and so, you know, international caving is a really good thing as well. Yeah, I think um, with the caving community being sort of smaller globally, it, it allows for a lot of connections, which is really great compared to maybe some other um, outdoor activities. It's but nice it's because it's not it's not got one-upmanship it's not mm. in certain sports I mean I find that if you grade things and you only say well if you can't do a 4c 5d or something then you're not doing as well as I am that's mm. not the way caving works you mean yes okay you get graded caves but that doesn't necessarily mean that people have a mental pecking order of who can do what and even if there is a sort of pecking order obviously some people are much more at the sharp edge of caving than others, there is also a place for everybody so that everybody can go off and do a really enjoyable trip together. And you don't have to be of a particular standard to do that. Yeah, I think what I particularly like about caving is that, so in climbing, for example, you generally have to climb at the same level as your climbing partner, but with caving, yeah. you can go caving with anyone. Um, and you know you don't tend to have that you know, group of people that you have to go caving with because they're the same, you know, level as you. It's That's right. And con conversely, when I've looked at these 
big uh, expeditions on mountaineering expeditions and things, people have often had to, if you read the books, you know, you find that the people who've gone on them have had to team up with people they really don't know and that are really not sure about. Whereas in caving expeditions, you usually know a core of the people you're going with and you were aware of it, snags and risks and each other's abilities and so on. And so that helps you not to have sort of quarrels or manoeuvring like they seem to have always had on big expeditions in the Himalaya where they've been manoeuvring for who's going to be in the summit team and this sort of thing. I mean, it's not the same now because, you know, it, it, the big old conquesty type expeditions have pretty much finished. But the great thing about caving is where they used to say, um, why do you go up a mountain? Because it's there. A friend of mine said, when you ask, why do you go down a cave? You say, because it might be there. And, you know, which is, you know, this is the thing about caving. You don't know what's around the next corner. You might find something marvelous. There's always that temptation there. And until you, if you don't go and do it, you don't find out, do you? And that's the fascination about caving. You can still find amazing stuff that nobody's ever seen before. And you're going to be like the first humans to ever set eyes on something fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if that's uh, a big difference in mountaineering and caving is when you're, when you're setting up a mountain, mountaineering um, expedition, the objective is so clear. Whereas in caving, you mm. really don't, you don't know. And you could find like several different uh, leads going off in different directions. So you need like a, a bunch of different teams, um, but you just can't, yeah, you just can't plan in the same way. It's interesting. No. One of the good things about the Matienzo expedition is over the last, well, since the early 1970s, Juan Corin has been in charge of it. And he has been such a phenomenal map uh, recorder of data. So when I first went out, he had these little file boxes and he, every time he'd read the logbook, he would make files on the caves and you'd say rummage through until you get to 44C or something. And you read it up and you say who's been there before and what you were doing. But as computer technology's improved, nowadays you, you just call in your survey stations, your survey notes when you get back to the bar and he'd type them into the computer and instantly your cave would come up on a screen. Then you get these um, you know, caving programs which whirl the cave round in 3D and it's like being able to fit the pieces into a fabulous 3D jigsaw puzzle straight away. And it's so exciting when you see that you come back with some uh, you know, survey data, read it into the computer, and you see where your part of the cave passage is going compared to either the rest of the cave or the rest of the area, all sorts. And um, it makes it so interesting to be able to do that. The Matienzo expedition has just run and run since, oh, I think it probably started about 1970. And it's still going strong because Dewan's always put in all this fantastic data and it make, makes it so you know, real for you to come back and see where you are in relation to something else. Yeah, the technology has improved a lot from the oh, yeah. hand drawing. <laughs> I can't well, imagine. I like hand drawn surveys. <laughs> I used to enjoy drawing up surveys. We were having a a discussion about this not long ago and uh, saying that I mean I couldn't do surveying now because I've never used a disto or anything like that I used to use compass and clino and enjoy do it, drawing up a survey when I got 
back as long as somebody put the line for me. I, I wouldn't have been able to manage in the really old days when you had to use log tables and things, but <laughs> right. somebody could give you the computer line. I liked it, but I mean, I'm way off the pace. I don't have a clue now about surveying, but back in the day, I used to enjoy drawing them at my hands. I mean, distos are a great idea because you used to do what are we going to survey from chest to chest or helmet to helmet or from point to point? And people all had their different methods and some were better than others. Um, one of my friends was so keen to uh, try and get as much new passage as possible that every time you gave him his end of the tape and said, how far is it? You used to lean backwards. <laughs> so Increase the length. And when we surveyed this cave, it came about... 20 yards out through the wall of the loop because he'd extended it so much by leaning backwards on his end of the tape. No, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> Our last question is um, hopefully quite easy. What is it about caving that keeps you coming back for more? I love the exploration side of it. I think that's really good. I love to hear other people who are still doing active exploration telling me about what they're doing. Um, it's great to watch YouTube clips of people doing cave, caving and new cave, finding new stuff. Um, it's such a whole interest. It can be everything from the physical side to the research side or the sorts of archaeology and um, all the biology that goes on in um, caving studies. The whole thing is, is a, such a complicated and interesting package, but Above all, I think what can I come back to it for is the people I've known and the people that I could know through it who all have this commonality of being friendly and cooperative and wanting to do something for its own enjoyment, not for any kudos or stakes in a bigger game. It's all to do with the cave and finding out more interesting things and getting an exploration done. So I think that's really why I keep coming back to caving. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for uh, giving us your time and your insights and sharing your experiences. We've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed speaking to you as well. Thanks. A big thank you again to Jane Shilton and thank you all for listening. We hope to see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>